I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Koval, CapEx's editor. Daniel Hannan is a, is a Conservative MEP for South East England, and he is the man who arguably did more than anyone else over the past few decades to turn Brexit from a dream to a reality. His latest initiative is the Institute for Free Trade, uh, which we'll be talking about today. And I should just say that we're here with our friends at the Centre for Policy Studies, the think tank co-founded by Margaret Thatcher, which uh, is our parent body. And uh, if you're interested in their publications or signing up to be a member, which is fantastic value, uh, then there's a stall at the back afterwards next to the wine. So um, I'm going to speak for about uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, I guess, and then we'll ask, uh, pass the microphone around. As ever, the shorter your questions, the more time Dan will have to answer them. Uh, anything which doesn't sound like a question or starts with, this is more of a comment than a question or, you know, uh, gets into its sort of fifth minute, I'm going to start making annoying noises into the microphone. Uh, it's the only language some people understand. Um, so, uh, Dan, let's start with an easy one. Which is worrying you more, the progress of the Brexit negotiations or Jeremy Corbyn? Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, well. thank you. We'll see you again next year. Uh, yeah, thank you all for coming. That was it. No, I don't think that people have properly grasped the magnitude of the change that Jeremy Corbyn proposes. I'm guessing most people in this room were lucky enough to be brought up in a prosperous and stable and democratic country. Uh, I had a slightly different experience in childhood. When I was five years old, our family farm was attacked by a mob. Uh, This was the Peru of General Velasco in the early 70s. There were land invasions and requisitions and nationalizations. The school curriculum was messed up and... The country was thrown into a state of squalor, which it took 30 years to recover from. You know where people fled to from the the Peru of the 70s? Venezuela. Venezuela was the rich country. It was the one bit of uh, South America that had European living standards. It was a little bit richer than Spain, a little bit poorer than Italy, but it was definitely the place to go to. You see how quickly that can be turned around with wrong-headed policies. Now, what did we see last week in Brighton? we saw something very close to the full Chavismo. We saw plans for confiscation without compensation. We saw contingency plans for currency collapse. We saw the proposal for the mass renationalization or nationalization uh, of chunks of the economy. 
And anyone who doesn't think, I mean, I still think, I, I don't know whether it's that we can't quite believe it or whether we still think that it's a joke or whether we think that the whole country will shrug it off. But when you look at the combination of that agenda and the levels of support it's now attracting, especially from younger people, the whole game is different now. When I was, uh, when I was doing politics at school, I think the assumption was, the assumption behind the curriculum was, we don't do extremes in this country. You know, we've never had a fascist MP, we've only had two communists, you know, we leave extremism to hot countries where leaders wear sashes and sunglasses and peaked caps, right? It's not what we... That's suddenly looking a very precarious assumption. And anything that isn't about saving the country from that, I mean, frankly, next to that, who cares what kind of deal we get to the EU? That's going to be the least of our problems if we're dealing with a Venezuelan-style policy being... I, I even heard someone in, in, in Brighton, without irony, on the news talking about it as 21st century socialism, Chavez's slogan. That is the, the, the magnitude of what we're doing. But I mean, I mean, uh, Raphael Baer in the in the Guardian wrote a kind of widely circulated piece, which basically put the blame for this on you uh, and and your and your colleagues, saying that you know effectively the the Tories thing has always been that they are the party that can manage the economy, the sort of sensible grown up party, the party of people like Philip Hammond, who you know who stands on the stage, and even when he's talking about the need to defend free markets, sounds like he's updating you on the annual kind of statement of statement of accounts from the business. Um, but Brexit, by its kind of sort of dreamy-eyed romantic nature, has licensed the dreamy-eyed romanticism of the Corbynites. That you know, you guys have essentially said, you know, this is our vision for for Britain, and it's and who cares about the sort of trifling details? So they can say the same thing, and you can't then hit back at them by going, you know, like for example, uh, Andrew Marr, you know, Theresa May said Labour will cause a run on the pound, and Andrew Marr basically said, what, like the run on the pound that you've caused? Well, I think there has been a rise. In, uh, the one thing that Corbyn said in his speech that I think was spot on was when he said politics is caught up with the crash. And this is something, as you know, that I've been saying since the crash, pretty much. And it's happened in every country. I, I don't think this is a Brexit phenomenon. It takes different forms in different places. It can take the form of, of Sanders or Trump. It can take the form of Wilders or Le Pen or Syriza or Podemos. But a populist and slightly authoritarian reaction to what is seen as a failure of the market system, and in particular, uh, a reaction to not so much the crash as the, the policy that followed it. You know, the, the far left had an argument that up until then always seemed absurd, which is that they would say there isn't really such a thing as a market. It's all... Uh, it's all a sham. It's all a way for the people who are already rich to pretend that there's a market system, but in fact to extract wealth from everybody else because they control the means of production. And this was, this was the, the ideology that sustained the Soviet bloc. And after 1989, that looked like a rotten and bankrupt ideology. But with the bailouts, which saw low and medium income families expropriated in order to rescue some very wealthy bankers and bondholders from the consequences of their own efforts. For the first time, that system, uh, that ideology seemed justified. And the free market was delegitimized. And I think we're living with this now. I think, I think Corbyn got that right. Now, how do we then respond as conservatives? Do we respond by meeting him halfway, accepting that the whole system is rotten, and competing with him in terms of spending? Or do we try and make a case for market capitalism as the best system ever tried. Not as a perfect system, no such thing exists in this life, but as a system far better 
than any of the alternatives. Well, it seems to me the, the route we've chosen, you can see the impact in the polls. We've chosen to compete with, you know, matching one spending pledge for another. First of all, in the run-up to the election, we stopped talking about the deficit at all, right? There were two different sets of higher spending being offered. If nobody, thank you very much, Jim, and uh, do pass on my love. <laughs> there, were, there were two sets of higher spending being offered, right? Nobody was talking about the deficit. We were saying we're going to spend more on NATO and we're going to spend more on mental health. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn was saying I'm going to spend more on writing off your tuition fees and giving every public sector worker a pay rise. Well, if that's the choice, the voter is reasonably going to assume, is he not, that there's no more deficit. There's no, you know, we've had eight years of austerity, it's all over. So which of those two retail offers do you prefer? Well, it's a no-brainer. Right? David Cameron never missed an opportunity to remind people that we were spending five pounds for, for every four pounds we raise. As soon as you stop talking about the fact that we are still borrowing a billion pounds a week, why wouldn't people vote for the more high spending plan? So um, I, I like this because you're asking your own questions, which uh, means I, I can just uh, I can just sit, sit, sit back and drink some wine. Um, but I mean, but you, I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll seen the recent polling from the Legatum Institute, where, which yeah. basically said that actually nationalisation is quite popular. That um, you know everything from you know banks is fifty fifty, and then uh, you know even Tory voters, even yeah. Tory voters by a sort of two thirds majority, want to nationalise the railways. I yeah. mean, how do you? I mean, surely, 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 just I mean. I say this as a sort of devil's advocate thing because it's, it's my job to shout about the free market, but surely just shouting about the free market yeah. isn't, you know... And, uh, yeah, saying, shouting about it is no good unless you do it. I mean, the, the, the proof of these things has to be empirical. You have to do something that works. Now, and one of the reasons for that, and the one thing that was clearly worse than rail privatisation, was rail nationalisation. Uh, but if you're not old enough to remember British Rail, you may struggle uh, to believe what I've just said because, of course, the way it was done, there were problems with rail nationalisation. It's just that the alternative... Well, pretty much any measure, actually. You know, not not, not just that the trains got received a bigger subsidy and performed less well and carried fewer passengers and were later, but you know, had more accidents. I mean, you know, the, but we've sort of forgotten all of that. Here's the thing: markets are, in the exact sense, counterintuitive. They don't uh, go with the instincts and intuitions that we developed as hunter gatherers million years of evolution have encouraged us to want to be self-reliant, to want to hoard food, to provide against famine. And so the basis of the capitalist system, which is depending on strangers, is running up against our genomes. And that's why all of the free market reforms are always unpopular until they happen. Every privatization in the 80s was loathed until it had happened. You know, the the deregulation of, uh, of agriculture in, in New Zealand, the, the dropping of tariffs, these things are always opposed because they seem counterintuitive. And the only way of winning the argument is once you've done them, you know, uh, it succeeds by and large. So it's taken until now for people who couldn't remember the alternative, who couldn't see that things got better when we privatised BT and, uh, and, and British Steel and so on, we've now got to win that argument again. And I think we... You know, we took our eye completely off the ball. We thought that argument had been settled for good. And of course, people coming new to it revert very naturally to the instincts and intuitions of our Paleolithic brains. And we need to show them again why that's not true. But sure, but, but you must accept that politically, at least, Brexit makes that a lot more difficult, not least because of the way it enmeshes the Tory party within the, 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 the attempts to, you know, 
to find some kind of deal and then to justify that deal and find a consensus for whatever that, that deal is. No, I, th I think it depends what happens now. But if we play Brexit correctly, one of the big gains and one of the unexpected and unannounced gains should be a significant fall in prices, particularly in food prices. Uh, when we joined, no one apart from my friend Jim over there will remember uh, 1972, yeah. but when we joined, the big argument was about food prices. You know, would it be dearer food? That was the phrase that everyone used, would it be dearer food? And it was. I mean, very significantly. Food prices went up 40% as a result of, of the common agricultural policy. Now, the CAP has reformed a bit since then, but according to the OECD, groceries are still 17% more than they would be if we were buying at world prices rather than as members of the CAP. Now, think of the impact that that cut in prices would have, particularly on people who are on low incomes and whose food bills therefore represent a higher proportion of their monthly budget. For a lot of people in this room, the idea of saving three or 400 quid a year in, in cheaper groceries is a nice bonus, but it's not as life transforming as it would be if you were living closer to the minimum wage. But it's not just that that is a good thing to do in itself, although it clearly is. All of that extra money can then be spent on other things. The stuff that you would have been spending on artificially high food, artificially expensive food, you can now spend on everything else, which stimulates the whole economy. Now, there are, in other words, good free market consequences of Brexit if we do them, you know? But you have to make the argument for them. There's no point in just sort of uh, uh, treating this as a sort of damage limitation thing. We have to talk about the opportunities rather than just about the obstacles. But, but this is one thing that divides you from your fellow Brexiteers. So when I told, uh, I'm not going to mention the names, but when I told uh, at least a couple of people um, that I was interviewing you, they asked with, with a certain sort of certain tone in their voice, ask him about Switzerland, ask him about EFTA. Because you, you, you've basically set, pinned yourself effectively to a form of Brexit where you don't really care about immigration so much as, as long as we get the free trade. Is that a sort of an accurate... Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm quite pro-immigration. I think if, I think controlled legal immigration is a good thing. And in my constituency, we still have labour shortages, yeah. But yeah, but you, but you would be sort of theoretically happy to accept the four freedoms if we had the freedom to trade. I, I mean, I think, that, I, I think the, the one change that we would make, the few changes we'd make, there'd be a big legal change. People would no longer be citizens of the European Union within the European Union. So there would no longer be all the justiciable rights that you have as an EU citizen. I mean, you will remember during the referendum, probably the case of uh, Abu Hamza's daughter-in-law, who couldn't be deported, even though she was a Jordanian national because she had a child who was born here and he was an EU national and so on. Once you are no longer citizens of the EU, there will be far more uh, control in the exact sense. But having taken back control, <coughs> I think it would be sensible to exercise that control in a way that allows the general principle of people being able to work and study here if they have offers, subject to our overall supervision. So I would, I mean, the, the, the big practical change is you would no longer have the automatic claim on all the benefits that you get as an EU national, but that you don't get as a non-EU national, right? Uh, it's like, you know, tuition at the same rate as a Brit and so on. Uh, you'd be, if, if you were coming from Belgium, you'd be the same as someone coming from Brazil. Uh, and part of that is that you would lose the in-work benefits, particularly tax credits. Now, I think this would make a huge difference in practical terms, both to the numbers and to the kinds of people who come. Because at the moment, if you're on average wages in Bulgaria and you take a minimum wage job in the UK, 
by the time you add in all the in-work benefits, including if you have kids, child benefit in your country of origin, you're substantially better off. Well, not substantially, but you are better off. Better off enough to have made it worthwhile to move. Strip out the in-work benefits, and that ceases to be the case. So I think subject to controls of that kind, what, what welfare you get and so on, we should recognize the principle of people being allowed to come here to take up offers to work or study. And if we're going to give that to our friends from the EU27, I think it becomes very difficult not to make the same offer to friendly countries in the Commonwealth and elsewhere. So, 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 your, so your red lines effectively are, are the ECJ and free, tra and free trade? Uh, well, I mean, free trade we've got already with the EU. I want to have free trade with the rest of the world as well. Which leads us to, to ask about the Institute for Free Trade. So, um, you, um, I mean, it's fair to say after the referendum you could have sort of gone on holiday for a while. Um, I know you. I, I know you tried to tried to become a Tory MP and were were sort of shot down by the by the party hierarchy. Which um, I, I didn't even get as far as trying. Actually, that was uh, never got off the ground. Uh, but um, but but so why why the IFT why um, why set up the the Dan Hannan Institute of uh, Hannanology? I think there is a. <laughs> well, I mean that would be the next thing, Rob. I hope uh, you'll be in the running for the first director. But um, I think there is a. I think there's a disproportionate concentration on our relations with the EU twenty seven, the whole world. Journalists and politicians are all obsessed with what kind of deal are we going to get? Is it going to be a hard or a soft Brexit? Are they going to be punitive or are they going to be conciliatory? I don't know. We're not nearly focused enough on the 165 non-EU countries, which will, to a single approximation, account for 100% of the growth this century. And that's where the work needs to be done, because there's a, tr there's a tremendous inertia bias in any trade negotiations. It's probably the single biggest factor. People are very good at learning how to make a living out of the status quo, however distorted and arbitrary and irrational that status quo. Right? And they therefore resist change because they're all making a handy living out of the, the old dispensation. When it comes to our trade deal with the EU27, we will find that for the first time in the history of trade talks, the inertia bias is pulling towards free markets because we're starting from a position of zero tariffs and regulatory equivalents. So, I mean, Liam Fox is sometimes mocked when he says this will be the easiest bit of the talks, but he's right. I mean, the, the, the paradox is we've started with the hardest issue, which is the money. By the time we move on to the trade, because both sides are content with the existing position, I think that will be with the, uh, relatively easy. With the 165 non-EU countries, of course, that is not the case. There you are looking to dismantle existing barriers and uh, existing non-tariff barriers. And there, I think, we haven't put anything like the energy. Understandably, I'm not criticizing anyone, but for 45 years, we've not had a trade department, we've got no institutional memory, we've got no expertise. And indeed, a lot of our officials then begin with all of these Paleolithic intuitions that you know exports are more valuable than imports, and we have to pay our way by making more things and so on. And these things you know, are not true, but they, they seem plausible. So this is why I think there needs to be somebody making the case for not just making the case intellectually for free trade, but actually going out and setting the parameters of the deals that we can get with Asian, African, and South American countries, showing how much potentially there is to gain for both parties. 
Sure, but but the criticism made of you and and others is is that you have a sort of um, a sort of nineteenth century view of free free trade that uh, that uh, you know because it, it, it goes back to the Corn Laws and the ideas that the, the 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 great fundamental act of enrichment in our country was lowering tariff barriers and then uh, you know and and prosperity followed, which which it did. And um, whereas nowadays people would say trade is you know is about regulation and standards and. Um, and sort of the you know if we need if we are to have and this this is the argument which is convulsing the cabinet at the mm. moment with Philip Hammond on one right. side and Boris Johnson on the other that if we are to have a continuing relationship with the EU we need to keep right. the same regulatory standards the, the, but that deprives us of our nego- even if we have the theoretical capacity to sign trade deals with other people we will n- won't have the sort of negotiating ability because we can't offer up we because because we can't. Uh, those non-tariff yeah. areas you talked so, about. So, okay, in the 19th century, what was the secret? I mean, we, we went from being a, 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 a slightly wealthier than average European country to being by far the richest place on earth in the, in the mid-19th century. And what was the secret of that? You know, it wasn't that we owned bits of real estate abroad, right? The, 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 uh, the balance sheet on imperial possession is pretty clearly negative. Whatever the other arguments against it, the empire was a net drain on our resources. Nor was it that we sort of backed strategic industries. What happened was that we removed the barriers that were pushing up prices at home, and we put more money into the pockets of ordinary people. That was the real basis of the Victorian growth. And we kept a lead far ahead of everybody else until the rest of the world caught up and started copying us, which, by the way, was really good for us, right? Because it meant that they had more money, which made them better customers. Even at that time, there was a great argument, very, very similar to the one we have today, about the transition from agriculture to industry. Tory party at the Times, the protectionist interest at the time said, look, these newfangled factories are never going to provide enough real jobs. Everyone knows that the real jobs are on the land. What are we going to do when people run out of work? And of course, what, we didn't have, as, as countries have now when they industrialized, we didn't have the, the root map of other people who'd gone before. We were the first people to do this, which is why it was so traumatic for us and why we still have this sort of dark satanic mills folk memory, right? Because it was a scary thing. We were, we were in uncharted waters. And what people had missed is that the mechanization of agriculture that released people from the land to go and do other things meant that you no longer had to spend almost all of your time just paying for enough to eat, which had been our lot for about 10,000 years up until then. So you were free to use the time you'd saved to go off and make new things, things that nobody up until then had dreamed of. And for the first time anywhere on the planet, ordinary people could start to afford cutlery and glass windows and more than one set of clothes and furniture and mattresses, right? Things that up until then had been the preserve of only uh, the wealthiest aristocrats. And that was the real genius of the British Republic. Now, you were saying, yeah. okay, that so was the yes. 19th century, that was tariffs. Yes. Why isn't it all now about regulation? No, it's exactly the same principle. Just because somebody else has dropped rocks in his harbour, you don't retaliate by dropping rocks in your harbour. If you want to maximise the prosperity of your people, you do it by saying what is legal in another country provided we recognize it as a kind of functioning state rather than Somalia, is legal here, right? That's all we need. And, of course, you want it to be reciprocal, but if it isn't reciprocal, the, best, the second best thing is still to accept their standards. And this is the, 
the path that has been taken by the countries that have most, you know, the, the modern equivalent of that British liberalization in the 19th century is New Zealand. They went from the late 80s to where they are today simply by reducing barriers to entry and by inviting the traffic and commerce of the world with as few restrictions as possible. Nobody there seriously now wants to go back. So, so this is what I was going to ask about um, you know, free trade. So, for example, China, big, big country, big market, but they are they are incredibly status. They have, yeah. um, you know, they keep, keep they keep foreigners out of certain markets. They have targets for the you know percentage of homegrown grown products. I mean, what you know, what would you what, what would your policy be? Just just let Chinese goods in because yes, yeah, yes, because the main victim of any tariff is always the person applying it. There is an incidental cost to the exporter that you're hurting, but the biggest cost is always to you. Again, this is a difficult idea. It's not an idea that accords with our hunter-gatherer intuitions. Right? Lots of people in the last week have been saying, well, hasn't Donald Trump shown that he will always put America first? He'll always be, uh, stand up for America? He isn't standing up for America. He is damaging America in the most direct and obvious way. Right? He is arguably standing up for one industry that happens to have political pull in Washington. But the primary impact of these tariffs that he's slapped on at Boeing's request will be to damage the aviation industry, to destroy jobs that would have otherwise come into existence in Delta and the other airlines, and marginally to make every air ticket more expensive than it would have otherwise been. And what does that mean? That means that all of the air passengers now have less to spend on everything else. So the whole economy is damaged because they're all having to put the extra money into the pricier tickets. It means that the cabin crew who would have otherwise come into existence but now don't, don't have the extra money to spend on everything else. Plainly, the chief victims here are in the US. And it's not even clear that Boeing will gain anything at all. It wasn't even bidding for the, the contract. I think the thinking is that uh, it wants to prevent Bombardier becoming a competitor in the future yeah, as opposed to... But, but here's, the, here's why it happens, right? It, 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 this, this way in which one, I mean, this tariff is, it's rewarding old industries over new ones. It's rewarding lobbying power over entrepreneurship. It's rewarding the rich over the poor. And it's, of course, rewarding the producer over the consumer. This is what tariffs always do. So why do they happen? It's a really interesting question. Why do people, you know, still say, but Trump is standing up for us? And this, again, this is the really a, a difficult but important point. Those Boeing employees are extant and visible and can vote. The cabin crew who now won't come into existence are, if you like, those are, those are subjunctive jobs, right? They, they're, not, they're not actual jobs. And therefore, they can't vote accordingly, however much more numerous they would have been than the Boeing jobs. And this is why protectionism happens again and again. For example, the price of sugar in the US is about twice world prices. Why? Because fundamentally, because Florida is a, is a swing state and there are some sugarcane growers in Florida and they have a lot of political muscle and they give a lot of money to both parties. Here's the thing. There have been lots and lots of studies. Between six and 11 jobs, depending on whom you believe, are lost in food processing for every low paid job that you're propping up on a sugar plantation in Florida. But those six to 11 people don't know who they are, so they can't vote. And this is why protectionism keeps coming back and favoring old industries, and as in this case, preventing the new technology that would benefit the whole country. Now, the worst possible thing for us to do is to retaliate, if you want to use that word, by inflicting on our own population 
the same pains and penalties that Trump has been foolish enough to inflict on his. So, 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 so if there is a... So, so if there is a no-deal scenario, you'd be happy with le just letting, basically letting, reversing to WTO, letting European goods in? Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't want there to be a no-deal scenario. I think we have an interest in the success of our European neighbours. We want them to prosper, and a no-deal scenario shouldn't be anybody's first choice from here. But with or without it, we should be aiming to have a situation where we are open to the world, where we are a, a, a free, engaged, open economy, you know, or, or rather where we rediscover being that open global economy that we were when we were the richest country on earth. So one thing which interests me about the, the IFT, um, and it's brought out by the fact you've got uh, various uh, international <coughs> luminaries on your board, it's, it's not just a British thing. You, mm. you're, so your feeling, and it's, it's a correct one, is that the, the global trade system is moribund. I mean, there's a great statistic that uh, normally trade grows at twice the rate of global GDP, and in the last few years it's been growing at half the rate of global GDP. So are you now, so ha having saved Britain from Europe, are you now, uh, is it your mission now to save the, save the world? So no, I'll leave that to Gordon Brown. Uh, but uh, you're right. I mean, that, 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 that the world trading system has been... So the la I, I would argue that the last significant breakthroughs in trade liberalisation were NAFTA and ASEAN in the early and mid-90s. I don't think there has... I mean, of course, there have been some small acts of trade liberalisation since then, but nothing large-scale. Uh, and what you've just described, the slowdown of, of trade volumes, is a consequence. Uh, and, you know, we have to accept that this is partly driven by public opinion. And this, I just think, is the, is the biggest paradox of all. Free trade has been the greatest instrument of poverty alleviation ever. In 1990, the UN set itself a target of trying to halve the number of people in extreme poverty by the millennium. Okay? Extreme poverty was defined as living on a dollar a day or less at 1990 prices. Uh, they've more than halved it by the millennium. In fact, the, the figure is now down to 8% from 38% in 1990. That's been the most extraordinary change in people's lives. And you can measure it by literacy, you can measure it by infant mortality, you can measure it by calorie intake, you can measure it by you know, female education. I mean, there's never been a better time to be a human being than now. And where have the most dramatic falls in poverty happened? precisely in those Asian and African countries that have dropped their protectionist and autarkic policies and opened themselves to world markets. So how, with this evidence of transformative uh, global prosperity staring us in the face, how is it that principled people, idealistic young people, around the world in developing and developed countries are protesting G20 summits and occupying stock exchanges and uh, demonstrating against trade deals, thinking that they're standing up for the poor against corporates, you know, when, they, when they're doing exactly the opposite. Nobody gains more from the distortions than the big multi multinationals. Nobody gains more from their lifting than the poorest people in the poorest countries. But, but isn't the problem there that, again, we come back to the issue of regulation, uh, regulatory harmony versus, you know, these aren't trade deals where you say, you know, after, the, after we've signed this trade deal, bananas will get cheaper. You're, they're trade deals where you say, after we've signed this trade deal, 
there will be a mutual recognition of standards so that you know American financial firms can operate in the UK and UK financial firms can operate in the, you know, um, I mean, TT, the, the um, CETA, the Canadian deal has, you know, an entire chapter on sort of human rights and, uh, you know, mutual, you know the, these, you know, the, the, these great big, great big things like TTIP and CETA, you know, they are not trade, that trade, you know, trade has moved, has moved into a, into a different sphere. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I suppose would be the the allegation. It doesn't need to. I mean, I would say that the best example of a trade deal on the planet is the one between Australia and New Zealand. And it basically just says, if it's legal in your country, it's legal in ours, and vice versa. They do have a, a clause that allows you to challenge something, right? And, and that's fine. And, and keep that as a, to reassure everybody that, you know, uh, you're not sort of uh, ceding all control over everything. But nobody's ever triggered that clause. And you didn't need to get into human rights or climate change or any of these things. I mean, those are all perfectly important and useful topics, but they're not to do with trade. You, the trade is just about mutual recognition and then talk about the other stuff. So um, I think, I mean, I, I think that's a, well, I suppose the, the question is how, how, would, how would you convince the EU to go along with it? Well, I think it's always useful to be able to point to a, an existing example. And as you know, I've always felt that the no. What, the, what the Prime Minister said in, in Florence was, we want to be not so near as Norway, but closer than Canada. I mean, that was pretty much it, wasn't it? I mean, minus the alliteration, that was her, uh, her core message. Well, I mean, that's, that's, as you know, that's where I, since before the referendum, said is the ideal, not as a kind of acceptable compromise, but as the, as the, the best possible outcome. And that, that's broadly the kind of parameters with, which contain where the Swiss are now. Uh, they have free trade with the EU, there's no tariffs, there's no trade barriers. They have, in some areas, copied the single market themselves. They have a bilateral treaty where they say, we will do what you do, and there'll be a bilateral arbitration mechanism. And in some areas, they choose not to do it. But they are outside the customs union. They're free to sign their own trade deals and have signed their own trade deals with Japan and China and the Philippines and so on. 
they're outside the common agricultural policy, they're outside the common fisheries policy, they're outside all the criminal justice stuff, they're outside all the defence stuff, and they are a sovereign country. There's no mechanism for EU law to be imposed by their courts on their own territory. Now, I can't help but think that the Swiss are doing pretty well, right? 82% of Swiss oppose EU membership. And are you surprised when you look at the standard of living in Switzerland compared to the standard of living in the EU? So I think they are a really good model of how you can have trade and cooperation with the EU. They opt into quite a few EU common programs on things as associate members. Great. They Obviously, they're surrounded by EU territory. They export a lot more to the EU proportionately than we do. But they're a sovereign country. And I think that should be our model. We want to have the closest and friendliest relationship with our 27 EU allies, as is compatible with being a sovereign country. So um, one, one final question before I open it up to the, to the floor. Um, Dan, uh, so this is sort of taken from a piece but in prospect by, by Phil Collins um, uh, about, uh, it's about Britain's new Gaullists. So what it says is, um, uh, Hannon is, in, in his more romantic moments, a Victorian Whig of a touchingly optimistic kind. Which I think could actually go on your business cards. Uh, I, think that's, I think that's quite a good... Quite a good um, uh, you know, in domestic public policy, these right-of-centre Brexiteers are deeply sceptical of the efficacy of state action. It is only the EU that turns them into unapologetic Gaullists. Suddenly confronted with overwhelmingly the most difficult administrative problem the British state has ever been lumbered with, the British Gaullists become optimistic to the point of cavalier about the capacity of the state. This is Great Britain and we can do as we wish. Mm. So how, how optimistic are you about the capacity of the state to, to do what needs to be done over the next two, two years, four years, however long it... The problem... I'll, 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 I'll answer that in full, right? The problems with a no-deal scenario are not the problems that are generally supposed. The danger of a breakdown is not really about the WTO. I mean, WTO terms provide for very, very easy trade. Another way of putting WTO is we'd have the same kind of deal with the EU, the America or Australia. That's right. That isn't the real problem. The real problem is that, as we argued during the campaign, for 45 years, the EU has run a chunk of our internal affairs. So the, the, the legal infrastructure that we would have developed through bilateral treaties over those 45 years, as other neighboring countries of the EU have done, just doesn't exist here. So what happens if we leave the EU with no deal at all? Well, if it were to happen tomorrow without any preparation, we would find that none of the things that we've contracted out to the EU have legal force outside it. Our driving licenses wouldn't work as international driving licenses. You know, Our patenting rules wouldn't be registered under the international authorities, etc. I mean, I can give you two Our, our airlines, uh, flights. Our, our airlines, etc., etc. Now, these are all remediable and short-term problems. Okay, They are soluble problems. So to answer directly your question, about my faith in the capacity of the state. I do not have great faith in the capacity of the British state to solve all of these problems simultaneously in the time available. And that is why I think there needs to be a smooth and gradual transition in order to allow us to put all of these things in place. But by the way, the, 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 the downsides are on, on all sides, right? I mean, if, if, if there are problems in aviation, it isn't just the UK, it's everybody, it's everybody else's airlines and everybody else's travel agents. So nobody wants this outcome. In order to ensure that we avoid that kind of uh, disruptive uh, break, if you're having a transition, frankly, I think we have to be uh, fair-minded about this. While you're still using the facilities, of course, you're going to pay your subs or a chunk of them, right? I mean, that's... 
I don't think we're the kind of country that would expect to get all this free. So I think that the likelihood is that there will be a, a phased and gradual recovery of powers, and that even after the bridging measures come to an end, we will still find ourselves doing quite a lot of things in partnership with our European friends. In other words, I don't think that the end game here will be simply that we have a free trade deal with the EU in the way that Mexico or somewhere does. Our geography and our history militate for something rather closer than that. And as far as I can tell, listening to people in Brussels and listening to what the two sides are officially now saying in their talks, that's broadly where it's going. And you know, before the referendum took place, every Brexiter would have been absolutely overjoyed at that outcome. The idea that Swiss file, we were going to get our sovereignty back and have a common market, not a common government. You know, that was what we were all after. I, I'm really puzzled by one or two people who were with me in the Leave campaign, who have suddenly changed their position and started arguing against what we were all in favour of for decades leading up until the vote, as though it's a sort of somehow, I don't know, virility contest or something. It's really not. What we want is the best outcome for our people and for our, our allies in Europe. Cool. Well, um, with that, I'll open it up for questions on the floor. Um, any any uh, questions, especially about how we can uh, defeat the monster Corbyn, uh, would be especially welcome. Um, and just one, while while we get the 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 mic in the right place, I just want to ask um, Brexiter Brexiter rather than Brexiteer. I've always felt that the latter had a certain sort of mus yeah, 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 musketeer it's, it's kind of Jerry, yeah, it's, yeah. It's much more glamorous. Um, I don't think Jeremy Corbyn is a monster, by the way. Every time I've met him, I've found him. You know what everyone says about him that he's so nice and he, it's true. I mean. In a world where, I mean, all of the Conservatives in this room will know that it is not uncommon talking to left-wing friends that they impute false motives to, to us, right? That, oh, well, of course, you hate the poor, really, and blah, blah. He's never done that. All the conversations I've had with Jeremy Corbyn, he's always done me the courtesy and done everyone the courtesy of believing that our stated motives are our real motives. I think he's a sincere guy. He, you know, he, he's got this obsession with... Uh, uh, public transport, and I've never known him. I don't think he owns a car. Every debate I've ever done with him, he's turned up either on a bike or, or by tube, right? So there is a, there's nothing monstrous he, about he, Jeremy Corbyn. It's just that his policies would destroy the, the freedom and prosperity that we've built up over uh, over two generations here. Fair enough. Um, yes. Chair Pickley from Lugenese. How do you rate Boris Johnson? I think Boris is brilliant. I think he's, he's clever, funny. The biggest mistake that people make about Boris is they think that he's scatty, you know, that he's not focused. Uh, I mean, he and I worked at the Telegraph with Rob, in fact, uh, 20 years ago. Boris, you know, three words into your sentence, he knows where you're going. He's a very, very sharp guy. Uh, now, people can have all sorts of opinions about his views and where he stands and fine. But one thing I think is just wrong is this idea that's been assiduously peddled in the last few weeks that he is um, an incompetent foreign secretary. It's not something I've ever heard from his officials. Even the most Remain voting FCO people are saying he's actually a great boss you know, because he's got a vision and they talk, to, they talk about what he's done in Somalia, what he's done in Libya, uh, what he's done in Korea, in the Middle East. Uh, I think the, the stories come from people who can't forgive him for the position he took during the referendum. And he seems to annoy a certain kind of uh, Europhile Mandarin in a way that, you know, Nigel Farage never does because Boris is regarded as the class traitor. You know, he was the, 
the, the, the Brussels educated, multilingual, uh, clever Oxford graduate who should have been on their side and wasn't. And that's what they find very hard to get over. So, um, similar question. I mean, have you found uh, yourself? Because I mean, yeah. you you appear to uh, you, you appear to assume a particular place in the demonology yeah. of the uh, of the Remainers. I mean, is that, is that a kind of comfortable position to be in? I mean, it's, that's policy. But no, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's the same class traitor thing. It's um, uh, it's it's uh, it's something you get from educated metropolitan people who I think are just annoyed because they can't believe that someone who isn't fussed about immigration and so on didn't come to the same view that they did. Margaret Thatcher said that uh, every generation has to refight the intellectual battle for the free trade and free market. And uh, we're clearly at that stage now. Mm. Uh, it's interesting that young people, of course, who use Uber, who use Airbnb, etc., are being told by people like Mason they should go. So I think the argument we've got to put must surely be what will disappear if you go down the status road that new technologies bring. And I think uh, Philip Hound made one good point this morning about artificial intelligence, robotics, etc. The fourth industrial revolution will create new jobs. But I do want to ask this question. If you deal with the big banks, the utility companies, etc., it is bloody difficult to get any change or get any service because the free market is about having information. They make it difficult in their contracts and their tariffs for you to understand them. Uh, we've seen a little bit of... Uh, so if you could hurry through yeah. the, to the question bit. We've seen a little bit of liberalisation on railways on the internet so you can get yeah. the train first. What can we do to ensure that the big, almost semi-monopolies behave in a free market. I mean, we, we create monopolies when we increase the compliance costs to a degree that forces consolidation because small operators can't afford them. And that's what we've done with banks. This too-big-to-fail phenomenon is a creature of government regulation. The biggest myth, I mean, I was a journalist long enough to, to, to spot when a story has passed the point of correction, but the biggest myth is that the financial crisis happened at a time of, or even as a direct consequence, of deregulation. The reality is that with the possible exception of nuclear power, you will not find a more regulated industry than financial services leading up to the crash. And, and that regulation replaced a, a culture of conscience with a culture of compliance. Instead of saying, is this the right thing to do? People were saying, have I ticked all the right boxes? And we, in fact, uh, <coughs> facilitated the crash and exacerbated it when it came. I, I do want to come back, though, Nick, on your, on your, your point about... The, the changes again this is one of those counterintuitive things people will say even if you're right in theory about free trade and all the rest of it what about the the localized cost to communities when the technological transition happens now this transition is a consequence of technology it's not a consequence of free trade but let's still take it on as a, 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 a as a major factor in modern politics my constituency is, is southeast, right? It's, it, it was never an area that had much by way of heavy industry. The big exception, not far from where you were in, in Parliament, was Chatham Docks. That was a classic bit of, if you like, uh, Northern or Midlands type industry transplanted into Kent. Uh, Chatham Dockyard employed 12,000 people at peak. It closed in 1984, just when the steel mills and the coal mines were closing elsewhere. And to this day, in that part of my constituency, I come across angry men who lost their jobs at that time, 
and they're still furious about it, and it's all that evil witch Thatcher, and she hated the working class, and so on. And I, I understand it. I mean, if you are my age and you've worked as a welder and it goes, who wouldn't be angry? I mean, how, how could you not be bitter in that situation? But it's only fair to tell the story to the end. Unemployment in the Chatham and Aylesford constituency is now 2%. More people are working on the area of the dockyards than ever before, than ever before. And what are they doing? A little bit of it is Medway University. A huge chunk of it is the audiovisual industry. It's where they make call the midwife. It's where they make Sherlock, right? In other words, the grandsons of those guys who were hitting metal for a living are tapping at computer screens. Now, does that, does that make it any better for the people who lost their jobs? No, I don't think so, but it does put a context around it, right? My late grandfather was a shipyard worker on the Clyde. I never met him. He had a typical unhealthy West of Scotland lifestyle. <laughs> he smoked very heavily. He died when he was very young. Right? So I never had the chance to say to him, would you rather have kept all these old industries running at whatever cost in subsidies and, and, and to keep your lifestyle? And so, uh, so I'll never know, but I have a feeling that if he could see what my cousins and I do for a living instead, he would regard that as progress. But isn't, isn't there a problem there that the... Um that the economy sort of the modern economy sort of polarizes between success and failure. And, you know, Chatham is lucky because it's near London, but there are places where the mines shut down. For example, uh, up in Yorkshire or, 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 or Wales, I mean, where, yeah. and there is transition all the time. Okay, we shouldn't minute that. Is just part of what happens. You invent telephones, you put all the telegraphists out of work. You know, uh, and the next thing, by the way, is not going to be heavy. I mean, the, the people who have been being put out of work now are not steel workers and miners. The, the jobs that have been lost in the last fifteen years have been local newspapers, secretaries, archivists, travel agents, right? And the next one, I, I suspect, I mean, if I knew this for certain, I'd be very rich, but I suspect that the next big wave of job losses, on your way out of this hotel tonight, count how many people you see driving for a living, one way or another. Add up all the Uber drivers, cab drivers, bus drivers, white vans. You know, we're talking, it's probably the single biggest form of male employment. Fifteen years from now, how many of those men are still going to be working? There's going to be drones, there's going to be driverless cars. But just like the local newspaper journalists, it doesn't mean they're going to be milling around unemployed. They'll be on to the next thing. That's what happens. Now, at this stage, people always say, well, what is the next thing? <laughs> Guys, if I knew that, I'd be a bloody millionaire, wouldn't I? I, I think somebody uh, is already working on the prototype now. This is my, my favourite quote from, uh, from John McDonnell's speech at Labour Party conference, that the, the, the transition to automation is, is so important, and you know, it will throw so many people out of work, that the only way to cope with it is via planning and management from the state. <laughs> <laughs> there you are. Voila. But I, this is, like I say, this is not a new fear. When I was talking about the... The, the, the objection to the Industrial Revolution. When we made the transition then from manufacturing to services, exactly the same fears were voiced. There won't be enough real jobs, everyone's going to be cutting hair and flipping burgers and so on. But actually, just, just look at the facts. More people are employed in the UK than at any previous moment in our history. So as a matter of demonstrable fact, don't take anything you know on trust. As a matter of observable empirical data, Far from destroying jobs, these increases in productivity and increases in competitiveness have created more work and created whole new industries that we previously hadn't dreamed of. Next question. Hi, Dan. Uh, Raul Sarn from the University of Warwick. Um, at a time like this, I find that free market ideas such as yours are few and far between in the Tory party. And um, I 
got to say, from what you said so far, I agree. I agree with Brilliant question, Ralph. Thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And sign up to CapEx. It's, That's right. a a, it's quite, a, quite a bit of a personal nature. Would you consider giving Parliament another try? Because I really feel that we need much more Tories like you to argue the free market case in Parliament, because right now it's going exactly in the wrong direction. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're very kind, but I uh, I love my country too much to do uh, such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Bearing in mind recent ITM polling, which suggested that even Remainers wouldn't be happy with a divorce bill of over 10 billion, what number would you put on what the British public might find acceptable? I wouldn't. I mean, no one's putting any numbers on either. So I'm not going to, of course, I'm not going to put a number give, on it. Give the poor woman a headline, Dan. I, I would put a number on it, but, but I, 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 you know, Barnier keeps on saying, we're not asking for a number, we're asking for the principles, okay? And I think it, that's a reasonable thing, and here, here's my sense of what the, the principles should be. First of all, during a transition, as I say, if you're still using the facilities, you pay yourselves. I don't think we're the kind of country that would walk away without paying our share of the bill. Second, any actual outstanding liabilities. That doesn't mean a press release saying that, you know, we're going to build a bridge in the, you know, Hungary. It means actual, you know, pension liabilities and so on. Again, we're not the kind of country that walks away uh, leaving debts. Third, if we choose to stay in continuing ongoing programmes on education, research, policing, whatever, the way that lots of non-EU countries do, Obviously, you pay your share of the bill of that. I mean, I, I hope this is uncontentious. I hope there are, there's no one in the room who would think that we, we should somehow be given all that free. If we, if we choose in the way that Canada or Israel or Armenia or whatever other country to participate in some joint EU activities, of course, we pick up our share of the administrative cost. And then there is the, 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 the tricky one. Do we take a generous interpretation of some of these items for the sake of goodwill and for the sake of a a cordial and amicable deal? Well, to give the obvious answer, it depends on what the overall deal is, but I would just make this point. We have an interest in the success and prosperity of our immediate neighbours. A wealthy neighbour makes a good customer. We don't want to leave the EU in a way that causes the euro crisis to flare up again, or that causes some other economic downturn on our immediate doorstep, because we will be immediate victims of it. And so, whether you're looking at the transition, eventual costs, we should be looking at a win-win scenario. We should be looking at an outcome which is advantageous for both sides, and we should do our calculations accordingly. There was a new word or phrase entered the dictionary earlier this year called post-truth, and it's basically the idea that uh, mass empty opinion is more important <coughs> than substantial arguments. Mm -hmm. Now. I think um, the general election showed this, that uh, it was a Twitter. Uh, the empty opinions, which were held for no more than two minutes, that were more important than the very substantial arguments that you're given today. How do you think we combat that? It's a really, really interesting point. I mean, I don't know if anyone here has ever watched Russia Today, or RT as it's now called. I mean, you see it in, in hotel rooms. And there came a moment... I don't know, about seven or eight years ago, when it stopped being a relatively sophisticated propaganda channel and became a cartoonish propaganda channel. I mean, just... just. Uh, I think that was when they hired George Galloway. <laughs> there may have been a connection between those two facts, I don't know. But, I mean, you know, it, 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 you'd watch it and you'd think, you know, a five-year-old could see through this. What, who are they trying to kid? What, what's the point? 
And of course, the point is to delegitimize all news. The point is that you see this enough, and eventually you think, you know what, it's all bollocks. CNN, Russia Today's, BBC, it's all the Fox, it's all the, it's all bollocks. Right? And I think that's actually happened. I think one way or another, we've got to the point where we, we uh, distrust in a way that we, we never used to, uh, these mass media. And I think, you know, the, the US election and so on are part of that phenomenon. In the end, I think, it will sort itself out. It will find a new equilibrium. A relatively small number of semi-monopolistic media have lost their dominant market position. We are now in a cacophony of competing interpretations. And eventually, out of that din of all these clashing interpretations, people will find, so, you know, some, some accuracy will emerge. That's, that's a big, because as, as, as J.S. Mill used to say, as long as you have the free exchange of ideas, the good ones <coughs> eventually drive out the false ones. But I'm afraid we're in this transition now. We're in the transition from one kind of medium to another. Uh, and yes, this fake news is a, a manifestation of it. So there's obviously been a surge in the youth vote uh, in the, the election this year. And I've been at University of Manchester for a couple of weeks now, and I have noticed that overwhelmingly the students and the staff teaching them have a very strong left-wing view. Mm -hmm. How do we, and I think it's because they're living, particularly the staff, living in a very academic bubble, not experiencing the, experiencing the real world. But how do we get it so that the, uh, the youth vote, which is now important or never, comes to our side, particularly on, in terms of Conservative Party and mm. Brexit? Well, I mean, be sympathetic to your members of staff, right? Um, think about it from the point of view of an academic. He's generally, or she's been winning prizes since they were at school, right? They've been bright, uh, successful, and now they are <coughs> earning not very much money, while the idiot at the back of their math set who messed around as, and became an estate agent is living much better than they are. So are they going to conclude that there's something wrong with them? Or are they going to conclude that there's something wrong with the capitalist system? <laughs> Human nature being what it is, so so be be sympathetic. But I mean, if, if left wing teachers were uh, were a guarantee of left wing uh, kids coming out of the system, there would have been Chavist governments all over the world by now. Um, I have a, a great faith in the capacity of people to make up their own minds. Daniel, um, it does seem that the debate at the moment is very much on which side will be right over the trade eventual trade agreements and trade figures and so on. But didn't Mr. Juncker's speech the other day point out that there were certain issues that we had to tackle sooner or later, and one is not wishing to become one state, and possibly another is wanting something other than the U European Court of Justice. So there were certain big issues that don't seem to be getting aired as much as the day-to-day -day trade. That's right. Uh, funnily enough, Mr. Juncker and Mr. Verhofstadt, and in fact, I would say that it was almost the sort of default opinion of most Federalists in Brussels, long before our referendum, were calling for a new status for countries like Britain. They would usually explicitly cite Britain as their example, where we would be some sort of associate member in the common market, but outside the common political institutions. And of course, that's what most people in this country wanted from the start. If David Cameron had been able to deliver that kind of outcome in the talks, he'd have won, you know, almost... Uni almost universally, including with my enthusiastic support. That was, you know, that, that was the British problem, or from our point of perspective, the European problem right from the beginning, that we wanted, uh, we wanted the economic links, but not the political union. So on one level, it shouldn't be that hard 
to say, well, hang on, you know, Gieber Hofstadt, this is the, the, the very speech that you gave in 2005 calling for this. Let's, let it. Of course, we're all human. And even the ones <coughs> who intellectually can see the case for this emotionally can't help feeling a bit jilted. And, and can't help, you know, tweeting passive aggressively, and, uh, <laughs> even if they're directly in, in the talks. Uh, but I don't think that the broad uh, outline of, of being, you know, outside the court, outside the political institutions, but a friend and supporter, a flying buttress from the outside, I don't think that that has been overtaken by events. The, the phrase they used to use in, in, in the EU institutions was a ring of friends. The EU, in other words, should make a political union, but then extend the economic and market institutions, not just to Britain, but to, you know, Turkey, Ukraine, eventually Morocco, Israel, who knows who else, right? Is that not rather a good way of flipping around the talks process? Once we position it as not being a standard bearer for everyone else who wants to leave, but au contraire, as we say in Brussels, to be the country that wants to lead the way of all the others who want friendship and alliance, but not political amalgamation, then suddenly the talks are no longer about dismantling something. They're now about building something new. And I think that we, I, 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 you know, I worry that we're missing an opportunity. Our first calls really should be to the EFTA countries and to the Balkan countries and to Turkey and to say, is there a way that we can try and create a European architecture that makes everybody better off, that brings something to the table for the EU27, as well as rationalizing all these uh, one-off institutional arrangements that we have around the European Union. That was what Delors and Giscard and all of them were calling for. I think it would suit us very well. Um, one final question before we rehydrate with the wine at the back of the room. Uh, from Dan, uh, uh, if you could use the, if you could use the mug. Um, do you think we should um, extend our Commonwealth family? After all, Rwanda and Mozambique, which never had anything to do with the British Empire, are now members of the Commonwealth. Perhaps we should encourage growth in the Commonwealth family, and maybe we might be able to have some interesting discussions with our friends in the EU and the Commonwealth. Would you like to comment? Well, of course, we do have two friends in the EU in the Commonwealth, namely Malta and Cyprus. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not particularly hung up on the Commonwealth, but I just think it's a, it's, a, it's a great thing that a voluntary association can exist on that scale and still be popular and still be growing, right? And I, I mean, the, the one European country that was really keen on joining was Georgia. And for various reasons, it never, it never took off. I hope that part of our eventual rapprochement, which has been you know, very strong over the last decade with Ireland, might be that Ireland will eventually rejoin the Commonwealth. I mean, obviously, that Ireland's not going to rejoin the UK. But a closer relationship with our closest neighbor and a stronger alliance with a country with whom we've been through so much good and bad has to be... Uh, in surely in, in the interests of both sides. Um, I, I, I just sort of, I come back in a way to, to, to where I started the whole thing. In 1972, when we joined the EU, the Commonwealth looked as though it was over. It had been experiencing great economic decline and great political problems. You know, half of its members were in the Soviet bloc and it was, it was, it was not going anywhere. And in the early 70s, Europe was the success on the planet, right? The, the, the growth rates of, of Western Europe between 1945 and 1974 were just phenomenal. And that growth pretty much came to an end with the oil crisis in 1974. We couldn't have timed our membership worse. We joined 
just as the growth in Western Europe was coming to an end, and just as the Commonwealth was beginning a takeoff that has lasted to this day. In 2013, the Commonwealth economy overtook the Eurozone. And when Britain leaves the EU, the Commonwealth economy will overtake the EU. So this is not a, uh, this is not just a sentimental argument. Uh, there are links of language and law, of custom and kinship, of migration, reinforced by the huge numbers uh, of people in the UK, UK nationals with Commonwealth backgrounds who have family ties, linguistic ties, all sorts of natural trade advantages in the countries that are now among the fastest growing on the planet. And we shouldn't think of the Commonwealth as a sort of sentimental relic. We should think of it as the most extraordinary asset in an integrated world where distance is becoming less and less important. On that note, Daniel Hannan, thank you very much. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.